Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Almighty Lord, you are more powerful than all those who live on high, and you care for those who are humble. By your own will, you went up upon the cross and stretched out your hands, desiring to save all men and to bring them to the knowledge of the truth. By your honorable ascent, you fulfilled all humility and were revealed to the nations as the great power of the Heavenly Father, the Most High and Unseen God. By the cross, you revealed our exaltation from the ancient fall of which we were condemned, the miserable fall. Therefore, we pray to you, Master, lover of mankind and our God, look upon us, your sinful and unworthy servants, who today celebrate with love the exaltation of your venerable cross and who offer worthy honor and worship. Do not turn from our prayers, O King of heaven and earth, and keep our nation and all nations in peace and tranquility. Watch over your church and guide our hearts and all our thoughts, that we may be worthy of eternal exaltation. For by your venerable death on the cross, you wish to raise up our hearts from worldly corruption and to lead them into the heavenly kingdom. For it is you who have mercy and save us. And to you we return glory together with your Father and your all holy, gracious, and life-giving spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Our speaker this evening is a married Catholic father of five, chief operating officer of the Coming Home Network, and host of the Elevate Ordinary podcast. John Mark Grodi has been interviewed on EWTN programs such as Life on the Rock and The Journey Home, as well as various radio programs. He writes and speaks on the nature of religious faith, aesthetics, Catholic social teachings, the writings of G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, and J.R.R. Tolkien, and various intersections of philosophy and theology in family life. A graduate student of philosophy at Franciscan University of Steubenville, John Mark resides in Perrysburg, Ohio, with his wife and five young children. It is a joy to welcome you this evening, John Mark. And thank you, everybody, for, for being here tonight. And thank you, Father, for that wonderful, glorious, chanted prayer. I have been really excited this week uh, to talk to you all tonight uh, about two of my favorite, uh, my favorite people, C.S. Lewis and Joseph Pieper. Again, I don't actually remember the conversation that prompted this um, this talk, uh, Father Hezekiah and I were talking a, a few years ago, I guess, and it stuck in his mind, uh, this essay of C.S. Lewis's that I, I love, it's very dear to my heart, talking about bicycles. It shows up in C.S. Lewis's book, 
Present Concerns, a collection of his essays. And actually, interestingly, also, when it was proposed to do the talk earlier this year, I'm not sure who on the team wrote the the sort of uh, stand-in title, Rediscovering Hope with C.S. Lewis, um, because I didn't know what I was going to talk about yet. I, I, I know I had the essay, but I wasn't sure where, where I was going to go with it. And then that title actually became the inspiration because, again, when I read this, this interesting essay, this this theme of Lewis's about these ages of enchantment that he uses bicycles as an illustration of. And what I see in, in the ages of enchantment is a part of just the natural course of, of human life the natural ups and downs of our spiritual life, the natural Job moments that everyone must experience, but the Christian also must experience, and the Christian hopefully should be more prepared for. But we also see, um, and this is mostly what I'm talking about tonight, is um, this distinction, this maturity from a human hope to a theological hope, the, the theological virtue of hope, this grace that builds on our nature, but this process that... that um, that takes place in our lives through the ups and downs. And so I'm going to, I'm going to begin tonight. You, you have the essay. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to, I am going to read the first little part of it that gives us this bicycles illustration. And then we'll go from there. This is Lewis's essay in his essay. He's writing uh, as a, as a dialogue uh, and his interlocutor. We don't know who that is, is the one who does most of the talking. He begins talking about bicycles. Said my friend, I have been through the four ages I can remember a time in early childhood when a bicycle meant nothing to me. It was just a part of the huge, meaningless background of grown-up gadgets against which life went on. Then came a time when to have a bicycle and to have learned to ride it and to be at last spinning along on one's own early in the morning under the trees in and out of the shadows was like entering paradise. That apparently effortless and frictionless gliding, more like swimming than any other motion but really most like the discovery of a fifth element that seemed to have solved the secret of life. Now one could begin to be happy, happy. But of course I soon reached the third period pedaling to and fro from school. It was one of those journeys that feel uphill both ways in all weathers soon revealed the pros of cycling. The bicycle itself became to me what his oar is to a galley slave. But what was the fourth age? Lewis asks, I am in it now, or rather I am frequently in it. I've had to go back to cycling lately now that there's no car and the jobs I use it for are often dull enough, but again and again, the mere fact of riding brings back a delicious whiff of memory. I recover the feelings of the second age. So before I go on with that, so right off the bat here, uh, I think this is a familiar experience for anyone who's ridden a bike. Actually, all my kids in this past year, all of three of the eldest all learned to ride the bikes without um, without training wheels. And so they are thoroughly in the midst of the second age. My son just rode downtown very proudly today with his dollar bills and was able to buy ice cream and, and ride all the way back. They're, they're thoroughly in this, this second age of enchantment. And it's this really interesting uh, structure that Lewis has presents us, this really interesting way of looking at life as a whole and looking at our, our relationship, our growth and maturity, spiritual maturity, with relation to various things we encounter in life. And he'll, he'll go on to apply this, uh, not just to bicycles, but to romantic love, to war, to government systems. And, but I think we can, we can apply it to, to many other things as well. I think uh, our faith, I think the church is, is one of those. You know, as, as a brief aside, so I, I work with the Coming Home Network Internationals. My father's apostolate. We help people who are becoming Catholic. We're often working with people who began their life unenchanted with regards to the Catholic Church, very enchanted with Christ, very very sold out for Christ, 
lovers of Jesus Christ, but thoroughly unenchanted with the Catholic Church. They just hadn't encountered it yet. And many of them, they read their way into the Catholic Church and they become thoroughly enchanted. Let me tell you, let me tell you that. But then something we often see, of course, and this is where our work often comes in, is they, they actually enter the church and they encounter the mess. They encounter the messiness of our family, the sinfulness of, 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 our, of us, of the members of the church. And the danger there is to become disenchanted and not to persevere through to the re-enchantment, which is that mature, mature place in the spiritual life where we're able to look back and recognize some of the false human hope that was mingled in with our relationship with God and how if we allow God to, that, that is purified and replaced with a deeper, intimate relationship with him. Let me read a couple more passages here. He goes on. What's more, looking back at that second age, I see how true they were, how philosophical even, for it really is a remarkably pleasant motion, to be sure. It is not a recipe for happiness, as I then thought. In that sense, the second age was a mirage, but a mirage of something. How do you mean, says Lewis? I mean this. Whether there is or whether there is not in this world or in any other, the kind of happiness which one's first experiences of cycling seem to promise, still on any view, it is something to have had the idea of it. The value of the thing promised remains, even if that particular promise was false, even if all possible promises of it are false. You know, there's an interesting, um, if you've read the, the Narnia series, there's a connection. You see these connections all throughout his writings. There's a connection to that moment in the silver chair when the, the children and Puddle Glum are being, being made to doubt everything that they knew before, doubt Aslan, doubt even the upper world. And there's this moment, I can't quote it, but, but Puddle Glum sort of makes this, makes a statement, a similar statement that even your reality that the, the evil queen is offering them is less than this, this, this truth that they're trying to hold on to, this memory of the truth they're trying to hold on to. And it connects elsewhere with Lewis's writings too. He, he points out that uh, we have this desire for something otherworldly. And that tells us a lot about ourselves. What we, what we see in the ages of enchantment is as we become an enchanted with things in this world, you know, we fall in love or we learn to ride a bicycle or we get really into our academic study or we get really excited about the church. There's, a, there's an enchantment there. And what's kindled in us is an otherworldly desire. Now, there's a necessary step of disenchantment, right? Because that worldly desire or that otherworldly desire can't be attached to a worldly thing. It's going gonna, it's gonna to pass away. And so the persevering through the disenchantment, that's where we, we, we walk with God to receive an otherworldly hope, a theological hope. We place that hope in Jesus Christ. But then we look back on that thing and we recognize that through the things of this life, through the, the experiences of this life, God was teaching us about himself. One more quick passage from here. He goes on to uh, extend the illustration to a, a donkey. Uh, Lewis says, sounds like a carrot in front of a donkey's nose. Uh, and the interlocutor replies, even that wouldn't be quite a cheat if the donkey enjoyed the smell of carrots as much as or more than the taste. Or suppose the smell raised in the donkey emotions which no actual eating could ever satisfy. Wouldn't he look back when he was an old donkey living in the fourth age and say, I'm glad I had that carrot tied in front of my nose. Otherwise, I might still have thought that eating was the greatest happiness. Now I know there's something far better. the something that came to me in the smell of the carrot. And I'd rather have known that, even if I'm never to get it, than not to have known it. For even to have wanted it is what makes life worth having. Lewis replies, I don't think a donkey would feel like that at all. And 
His interlocutor replies again, no, neither a four-legged donkey nor a two-legged one. But I have a suspicion that to feel that way is the real mark of a human. And I love that little bit there. Again, it connects to lots of Lewis's points elsewhere in his writing that that is something distinctly human in us. Donkeys don't feel that, but we do in our, in our, in our enchantments with the things of this fairy tale that God's given us, that we do what's kindled in us is an otherworldly hope. And it takes disenchantment. It takes the Job experience in life often for us to begin to winnow, to separate that human hope from that theological hope, to, to recognize that that hope, you know, born out of, out of faith and proceeding towards charity, that's what we're made for. That's what makes us distinctively human. And as we'll see, I want to make sure I circle back in, in the end to what we discover in the ages of enchantment, as we discover in this maturation of hope, we discover the truth of Christ saying, um, paraphrasing here, if you, if you love your life, you lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will gain it. The supernatural hope also redeems all of our human loves as well. I want to take a moment to, to diverge here from, from Lewis's ages of enchantment and talk a little bit about hope, about the theological virtue of hope. So I'm going to turn to the catechism for a moment. And this is paragraph 1817 and 1818. Hope is the theological virtue by which we desire the kingdom of heaven and eternal life as our happiness, placing our trust in Christ's promises and relying not on our own strength, but on the help of the grace of the Holy Spirit. So, so first of all, again, the, the virtue of hope, the theological virtue of hope, hope is, is connected with, with desire. And we think of the theological virtues are these virtues given by God in grace. They're the virtues of our relationship with God. In some sense, they sort of come to us before our active life of virtue. And our active life, life of virtue predisposes us to a greater uh, receptivity to these theological virtues. They're, they're there in the beginning. Because for us to even seek the truth, to try to do the good, grace was already there. So they're always there in their root, in their seed form. But it's then in our active engagement of the faith that, that we're made more open to them. The Catechism goes on. This is 1818. The virtue of hope responds to the aspiration to happiness which God has placed in the heart of every man. It takes up the hopes that inspire men's activities and purifies them so as to order them to the kingdom of heaven. It keeps man from discouragement. It sustains him during times of, times of abandonment. It opens up his heart in expectation of eternal beatitude. Buoyed up by hope, he is preserved from selfishness and led to the happiness that flows from charity. Again, there's just so much. I love the catechism. There, there's so much in, um, in these small passages. But, but two things there, that the theological virtue of hope, again, purifies even our natural human hopes and loves. It, it, it guides them through the difficulties of life to make sure that they reach their destination in true purified charity. And that charity, of course, you know, the faith, hope, and love that's, that's in our Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, let me turn to Peeper too, to just flesh out a little bit more, again, this virtue of hope. Again, well, I'm drawing uh, also tonight from Joseph Pieper's uh, essays on faith, hope, and love, which if you haven't read his book on the cardinal virtues and his essays on faith, hope, and love, I'd really, really recommend them. They are just one of my great loves in life. I've been studying them the last couple of years. He writes, the supernatural life in man has three main currents. The reality of God, which surpasses all natural knowledge, manifests itself to faith. Love affirms also in its own right, the highest good, which has become visible beneath the veil of faith. Hope 
is the confidently patient expectation of eternal beatitude and the contemplative and comprehensive sharing of the triune life of God. Hope expects from God's hand the eternal life that, that is God himself. Sperat Deum Adeo. So again, hope is this patient expectation. Hope is connected to desire. Hope is, along with the other theological virtues, are these virtues of our relationship with God. But again, hope is particularly connected to, to our desire for the gifts that, that, that God wants to give us, the life that God wants to give us. And it's also, I mean, he'll point out here in a moment that, that hope proceeds uh, into charity. To some degree, even our theological hope is, let's see, how does he put it here? Charity with God will be this perfect love of friendship, whereas hope is still hoping, hoping for the life that God wants to give us. But it's proceeding towards charity, this ultimate friendship with God. Another quick passage here, this is where he goes on to say, this existential relationship of these three, faith, hope, and love, can be expressed in three sentences. First, faith, hope, and love have all been implanted in human nature as natural inclinations, habitus, conjointly with the reality of grace, the one source of all supernatural life. So number one here, once again, these theological virtues, they're, they're implanted with this. They're, they're part of this initial gift of grace that we all have, but it needs to take root. It needs to grow. We need to make ourselves open to it. Second, he says, in, in orderly sequence of the active development of these supernatural inclinations, faith takes precedence over both hope and love. Hope takes precedence over love. And conversely, in the culpable disorder of their dissolution, love is lost first, then hope, and last of all, faith. So in our active engagement of these virtues, faith in Christ, our knowledge of, of the Lord, our, our encounter with the Lord opens us up to, again, the reality of our human, our human desire for fulfillment, which is that we can't be fulfilled in this world. Our hope is an otherworldly hope. That's the only place where our longing for fulfillment can be fulfilled. And that hope for that ultimate fulfillment guides us through the difficulties of life to the, ultimately this, this relationship of charity with the Lord. And so too, an interesting point he makes there that, that their loss happens in reverse order. We lose charity first, and then we lose hope. And then even our faith, even our, our knowledge of the truth is darkened if we are moving that direction. And so his last point here, third, in the order of perfection, loves holds, love holds first place with faith, faith last and hope between them. And that makes sense, of course, too, because in the, in the beatific vision, faith and hope fall away. They're unneeded anymore. And what's left is, is charity. So yeah, a few more points then from Pieper about, about this theological virtue of hope. Number one, hope, the theological virtue of hope is a virtue that affirms our status via Taurus. Our, our status of, as human beings of being on the way. Now, the status via Taurus is contrasted with the status comprehensoris. I think that's that's the term he uses. And the point being that on this side of heaven, we, we, we have to keep in mind that we're people on the way. The very state of our being is, is a being that's on the way towards fulfillment, but not fulfilled yet and unable to be fulfilled this side of heaven. And again, the, the process of life, and I think the ages of enchantment give us some insight into this into this process, our human hopes and loves, um, our, our, our human inklings of the divine, they have to give way, but they're, they're given way by us embracing the fact and keeping in mind the fact that we are not there yet. That's part of, of keeping to the truth as we go through the difficulties of life. About the status via Taurus, uh, Pieper writes, for the individual who experiences in the status via Taurus his own essential creatureliness, the not yet existing being of his own existence. There is only one appropriate answer to such an experience. 
This answer must not be despair, for the meaning of the creature's existence is not nothingness, but being, that is fulfillment. Nor must the answer be comfortable certainty of possession, for the becomingness of the creature still borders dangerously on nothingness. Both despair and the certainty of possession are in conflict with the truth of reality. The only answer that corresponds to man's actual existential situation is hope. The virtue of hope is preeminently the virtue of the status via Taurus. It is the proper virtue of the not yet. So again, as it said in the catechism, the theological virtue of hope in this life is precisely that virtue that, that keeps us lodged in the truth of things, the truth of our, our human nature, the truth of our, the truth of our status as being on the way, but also, also the truth of our being destined, called toward the otherworldly fulfillment. And again, having that in our, in our mind, more consciously engaged in our faith is what helps us go out into life, into our enchantments, into again, and, and using enchantment in a good, in a good way here. I mean, the, the, the things of this world, the relationships, bicycles, I mean, they're good things that God has given us, but he's given us this world uh, as this place where we encounter these things, our hope, our desire for our otherworldly fulfillment is kindled. And then we're able to, to slowly kind of work through, mature through that to the place where we, um, you know, we're, we're in a deep, deeper relationship with uh, our Lord. So that's the, the first point, the status via Taurus. Um, again, a second, second one is precisely this distinction between human and, and theological hope. He makes the point that what's interesting about, the, about hope is that um, it would never occur to a philosopher, unless he were also a Christian theologian, to describe hope as a virtue. For hope is either a theological virtue or not a virtue at all. It becomes a virtue by becoming a theological virtue. One of the things I love about Joseph Pieper's writing is whenever he, he goes out to, uh, to discuss a topic, he rehabilitates the word first. He, st- he takes a word like hope or humility or prudence, and he begins by saying, here's what people think about it. Here how it is how it's commonly used. And he kind of gets all that baggage out of the way first. When hope is often used in, in, in our modern world, in, in our literature, in our, in our movies, our Disney movies, it's used as a, a holding to a falsehood, right? And when, when you have a movie... And many of our movies do this. They presuppose an atheist universe. They presuppose a universe without God. Then when the characters talk about hope or when they make a choice to hope, in some sense, they're embracing a lie. They don't know whether things will turn out okay. There's no real reason to hope that it could go either way. The Christian knows that. The Christian, because he knows Jesus Christ, he knows the truth of Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good for those who love God. We have a basis for that hope, but a hu- but the merely human hope has no such basis. And so, unlike the cardinal virtues, for instance, prudence, justice, fortitude, temperance, and their sub-virtues, hope, unless it is a theological virtue, is actually not necessarily a virtue. Because you can hope in this world, you can put your hope in things that are false. You can hope for and desire things that are bad. If we think of in terms of the ages of enchantment, there's nothing bad about the falling in love. There's nothing bad about the, you know, the enchantment of the experience of learning to ride a bicycle. But the person who tries to grasp and hold on to that, even into disenchantment and beyond, who won't let that hope, that human hope fall away and give way to hope for the creator, hope for the fulfillment in heaven, that hope begins to corrupt. That hope turns into something that brings death rather than life. So it's interesting that this, this, this notion of hope as a human 
I'm not sure what to call it if it's not a virtue, but without being a theological virtue, it's not necessarily a virtue. It's a, as an experience, this enchantment is a good thing. These, the, the good creation, the, the world, the sacramental world that God's given us. Um, but that human hope, that human kindling of desire has to be oriented towards and give way to supernatural hope. Now he talks about um, a couple of my favorite virtues here, a humility and magnanimity as being the actual human virtues that are good uh, in themselves that sort of uh, guide human hope towards its, its culmination in theological hope, humility and magnanimity. Now, humility uh, is primarily this relationship with, with truth, the truth of who God is and who I am. And magnanimity is this orientation of your soul towards doing great things, that God has called you to do great things. And it's interesting, he talks about humility and magnanimity as being these sort of guardians that sort of midwife human hope toward its supernatural destination. A couple quotes there. As materia, the disposition of sensuous intellectual hope, this, this human hope that we have, we experience, that aspires to the not yet of man's natural fulfillment is ordered by two virtues in particular, magnanimity and humility. Magnanimity is a, a, a much forgotten virtue, is the aspiration of spirit to great things. And later on, magnanimity, magnanimity incorporates into itself the aspiration of natural hope and stamps it according to the truth of man's own nature. And a little later on as well, it is the function of humility to be the negative measure of instinctive natural hope. Magnanimity directs this hope to its true possibilities. Humility with its gaze fixed on the infinite distance between man and God reveals the limitations of these possibilities and preserves them from sham realization and for true realization. Now, I think to see, to see what Peter's getting at here, we need to think of the opposites of these two virtues, magnanimity and humility. What's opposed to humility is pride. What's opposed to magnanimity would be sloth or acedia or despair in kind of its worst form. And again, what's interesting, you think about these, these ages of enchantment. Um, we think about that first, the ability to be enchanted, even with the world, which again is a good thing. That depends on humility. That depends on this ability to wonder in humility at the world that God has made. Humility is the virtue that allows you to look up. Pride can't look up. Pride is always looking down on everything. And so pride, the prideful person can't even be enchanted. And of course, we see this a lot today. We see a whole world that without ever really becoming enchanted with things, um, we have a whole world of people who, who can't even look up to the beauty of, of the world around them. And so too, once we've had that experience, once we've fallen in love or learned to ride the bicycle, or we've read our way into the Catholic church, when we experience the inevitable disenchantment, which uh, again comes about because we, at least to some degree, we had a we had a human hope in this temporal thing. Um, the question of whether we can mature through that disenchantment comes down really to these virtues. Again, in humility, um, we keep looking up to God and to the distance between us and God, the reality of our weakness, the reality of our sinfulness. But magnanimity also uh, keeps us looking up. To recognize that even in our humility, God's calling us to great things. And one of my favorite quotes, there's a bunch of quotes here that I, uh, it's a whole different talk, but talking about uh, pride and sloth and humility and despair and all that stuff. But I'll just read a couple here from Peter Kreft. I think this is the one I want here. 
and this comes from uh, his book, Prayer for Beginners. He writes, high and holy ambition to be a saint is not opposed to holy humility, total reliance on God's grace. Exactly the opposite. Ambition without humility is ambition that fails. It is pride, which goes before a fall. Humility without ambition is false humility. In fact, it too is pride, for it rebels against God's command to strive for the upward call of God. It's interesting. Pride and despair are, are linked here. And again, I have some other quotes about this. I, I find it really fascinating. But, but pride and, and despair are linked in that they're both resistance to the truth of who I am and who God is. Despair or acedia or sloth, they're, they're a false humility. You know, a true humility recognizes my smallness in the face of the almighty God who loves me and who has cherished and chosen me. But the false despair of acedia and sloth, it kind of looks up toward the reality of who God has made me and it and it's saddened by that. It doesn't, it doesn't want that. But it too, oh, I can't resist this. Okay, I, one more quote here from Peter Kreeft about this, this connection. Pride and despair are twin brothers. They do not exclude each other, but encourage each other. There is a secret pride in despair, a tragic grandeur, an overweening claim unfilled. And there is a secret despair at being human in pride's demand to play God. Humility is the opponent of both. It keeps us from despair as well as from pride. The greatest virtue keeps us from the greatest vice. So again, humility and magnanimity, humility opposed to uh, pride and not to be confused with, with uh, despair and sloth, as well as magnanimity. You know, the holy humility and the holy ambition of magnanimity, they go together uh, and they're opposed to those, to those vices. And again, if we think of the, we think of the ages of enchantment, we see how these are sort a couple of the virtues that on the human level help us to navigate through the inevitable ups and downs of life, the enchantment, the disenchantment, and then the re-enchantment. I was thinking about this today that, um, again, I, I referenced earlier our work in the Coming Home Network, and we think about the ages of enchantment, we think about the, the maturation process that every person has to go through time after time in their lives, and we recognize that it's not, it's not enough simply to give people information, either about the faith uh, in a hopeful way, nor in a sort of a, a realistic cautionary way about the truth of the world. It's not just about information. It's about, we need to be walking with people in virtue because you kind of have to, we have to experience the ups and downs of life for ourselves. You know, every Christian has to embrace suffering. Well, you, you can only tell people about that so much ahead of time, but it takes actually walking through the suffering to recognize our divided wills, to recognize our, the impurity of our hearts, that so much of our, our human loves, so much even of our love of God and of the, of the faith was mixed up. It, it was our, our human loves mixed up with, with our faith and our love of God. And again, it's those experiences of life embraced properly where we, we experience the proper death to self. And those, those are, are separated and, and winnowed away from each other. But that supernatural hope when, we're, we, when we embrace it, we, when we embrace um, our relationship with the Lord, again, what we also see there is um, a raising up, a rejuvenating even of, of our human nature, our human loves, our human hopes. Uh, Father was talking about this uh, a little bit before the meeting today, about how the hierarchy in the church, the hierarchy, the, the different positions, things like that. And it's different from our modern sensibility. We have a real suspicion about any hierarchy these days because we, we think of hierarchy as being a, a zero-sum game, that if something's higher, something's greater, more beautiful, that it takes away from something 
below it, but not so with, with the, the hierarchy of God. God's glory raises us up. You know, a person who in, in one sense has a greater position in the church than us, they dignify us. They raise us up. They call us onward. The hierarchy of God doesn't work like the hierarchy of man does. And so too, with the theological virtues, with the grace of God, it doesn't um, destroy our human nature. It doesn't disparage it. It raises it up, but it, but it, 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 it takes us letting go again of those human loves. And again, that's part of the key to this process, these ages of enchantment, that when we, we fall in love with the good things of this world and we experience the inevitable disenchantment, that's where we had this moment in humility and magnanimity to choose God to set aside the things of this world. Again, as, as Christ himself says, he who loves his life loses it and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. But what happens when we, when we let go of the world and we embrace God? Well, many of the good things are returned to us, but in their proper order, in their proper place, in their proper relationship. There's a, a bit, going back to Lewis's essay for a moment, but later on when he, he's applying the ages of enchantment to romantic love, and I'm just going to read the second part of this. Lewis writes, I was never married, he says to the interlocutor. And the guy says, oh, that's a pity. For in that case, you can't possibly understand this particular form of re-enchantment. I don't think I could explain to a bachelor how there comes a time when you look back on that first mirage, perfectly well aware that it was a mirage, and yet seeing all the things that have come out of it, things the boy and girl could never have dreamed of, and feeling also that to remember it is in a sense to bring it back in reality, so that under all the other experiences, it is still there like a shell lying at the bottom of a clear, deep pool, and that nothing would have happened at all without it, so that even when it was least true, it was telling you important truths in the only form you would then understand. I love that passage, that in our, in our human loves, our human enchantments, God is speaking to us often in the only way that at that time we can understand. He's speaking, he's, he, again, he's kindling our desire for ultimate fulfillment in the, in the language we can understand at the time. But then we go through the disenchantment. And if we're able to endure through it in humility and magnanimity to the other end of, of re-enchantment, where we come to a, a more mature you know, faith and hope and love in our Lord Jesus Christ, well, then we look back and we recognize that even though we see, we see the imperfection, the incompleteness of that human love, we're able to appreciate it all the more now in its proper place, in its proper relationship with God. And we're also able to realize that, that because um, of the glimpse of ultimate fulfillment, the glimpse of the divine in that thing, that so much good came out of it, but that the good, even the good that did come out of it was, was, was drawn along by our, our hope and ultimate fulfillment. But for that to continue again, it gets to this place where we, we have to consciously and put our Lord first, put that, that, that theological hope first. It reminds me of, of Lewis's um, first and second things principle. I can't remember where he writes about that, but right. If you put second things first, you end up losing both first and second things. But when we keep first things first, um, it, it, pres it preserves the whole. So all that is to say, we know that Christ is the actual foundation of our hope. Um, we have this distinction between our, our human and our theological hope, but the ages of enchantment that Lewis gives us here, uh, there are a real wonderful reflection, real wonderful, um, I think, opportunity for, opportunity for meditation on things we've experienced, maybe things we're experiencing right now, 
helping to understand where we are on the on the undulations in the spiritual life, but also hopefully helping us to keep our our eyes on this relationship with our Lord. That um, it's the relationship with Christ that is these theological virtues. That if we hold on to it, that His grace builds on our nature, and we're able to become more like Christ. So that that this whole process culminates into um, into eternity, into heaven with our Lord, but also the rejuvenation um, and the, the resurrection and the putting in their proper place of these human loves. And just a, a final couple quotes here. This is Pieper talking about this rejuvenating quality of theological hope. He writes, in a certain sense, the virtue of hope brings order and direction in its wake, even for man's natural hope, which is bound thereby to its proper, proper and final not yet. And later on, Supernatural hope, then, which embraces not only the firm expectation itself, but also the living source of this expectation, is able to rejuvenate and give new vigor even to natural hope. Rejuvenate is precisely the right word here. Youth and hope are ordered to one another in manifold ways. They belong together in the natural as well as in the supernatural sphere. The figure of youth is the eternal symbol of hope, just as it is the symbol of magnanimity. And one final quote here. The supernatural vitality of hope overflows, moreover, and sheds its light also upon the rejuvenated powers of natural hope. The lives of countless saints attest to this truly astonishing fact. It seems surprising, however, how seldom the enchanting youthfulness of our great saints is noticed, especially of those saints who were active in the world as builders and founders. There's hardly anything comparable to, to just this youthfulness of the saint that testifies so challengingly to the fact that is surely most relevant for contemporary man, that in the most literal sense of these words, nothing more eminently preserves and founds eternal youth than the theological virtue of hope. It alone can bestow on man the certain possession of that aspiration that is at once relaxed and disciplined, that adaptability and readiness, that strong-hearted freshness and resilient joy, that steady perseverance and trust that so, so distinguish the young and make them lovable. Faith and hope and love again are these these fundamental orientations inclinations planted in us they're kindled through our experiences of life through our loves through the ups and the downs but if we persevere in humility and magnanimity we place our faith hope and love in christ and that is what reaches back and transforms even the difficult parts of our lives and makes them part of of the bit of heaven we experience we taste even now that's all I have for you tonight. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mr. Gordon, for being with us this evening. Annie, do we have some questions coming in? We do. We've got a few that are in, and we'll start with this one, John Mark. Um, one attendee asks, for an atheist who's facing the end of life, where would you suggest beginning to discover true hope? Well, in keeping with, um, I mentioned earlier that I work with the Coming Home Network International, and we're big on the power of stories. Um, you know, you have to know the person you're talking to and whether they'd really be open to apologetics proper, but telling your own story is a great way to do narrative apologetics. Um, in other words, you kind of do a personal Lord liar, lunatic trilemma, you know, Lewis, Lewis and others have made that, that classic apologetic argument. Well, whenever you tell your own story, you kind of do a personal version of that, right? You know, every conversion story sort of involves, Hey, there are three options here. I could be crazy. I could be lying to you, but this is what happened to me, right? This is what the Lord did in my life. This is, you know, these are the things that I've, I've, I've gone through. And here is how 
I've come to um, a, a hope in something beyond this world in the person of Jesus Christ. I think conversion stories are, are a powerful thing because they involve this humility, right? Um, it's just the reality. This is just my story. It may not mean anything to you. You may not believe it, but this is what happened to me. And so too, you know, the it's interesting, the ages of enchantment maybe give us practice in thinking back through aspects of our conversion story. I don't think Catholics are, are very good at telling conversion stories. This is more of a, of an evangelical bit of patri- patrimony that uh, oftentimes they're bringing into the church, which is that we should know our story. We should have meditated on it. We should have brought it to prayer and we should be able to tell it to another person. We should be practicing that. And so too, I think that sometimes that's the best way to share the faith is by saying, listen, this is what happened to me. Do with it what you will. And so maybe that's maybe that's an opportunity, a way to to share um, what the Lord has done with your life in a different way. It gets the, the apologetics in there, but in a yeah, hopefully a more palatable way that might touch somebody's heart. Yeah, nice. That's that's an awesome answer. We have a question coming in from Kathy, and she is wondering about the last line of the essay. So she wrote it in here. So I'm just going to read from what she wrote. Um, she asks, how do you interpret the final statement of the essay? in connection with what you said tonight. She's quote, a society which becomes democratic in ethos as well as constitution is doomed. Yeah, so we didn't read the part of the essay where he applies uh, the ages of enchantment to forms of government. Um, (laughs) Could probably be a lecture in itself. Yeah, uh, actually, just let me read it. It's a short passage here. Yeah, you're quite right. You mean that aristocracy is one example? It was the merest enchantment to suppose that any human beings trusted with uncontrolled powers over their fellows would not use it for exploitation, or even to suppose that their own standards of honor, valor, and elegance, for which alone they existed, would not soon denigrate into flash vulgarity. Hence, rightly and inevitably, the disenchantment, the age of revolutions. But the question on which all hangs is whether we can go on to re-enchantment. What would that re-enchantment be? The realization that the thing of which aristocracy was a mirage is a vital necessity. If you like that aristocracy was right, it was only the aristocrats who were wrong. Or putting it the other way, that a society which becomes democratic in ethos as well as in constitution is doomed and not much loss either. So again, um, Father Hezekiah was talking about hierarchy, about different positions, about kind of structure at the beginning uh, before the lecture today. And I mentioned in there that, again, God's hierarchy is different than ours. And this is one of the dilemmas that we we sort of face. Maybe you've encountered this uh, being maybe literature people like my, like myself. We recognize, we read books about kings, uh, about, you know, great kings and lords and captains, and it captures our heart. But then we look at the real world and it's like, there's been a lot of failure in that. And and rightly, perhaps rightly so, our our, our world has turned to, you know, the democratic forms of government to, to deal with some of those fa- human failings. The point he makes here, though, is that both those things can be right. Like we may need to have democracy and laws and constitutions in order to preserve the uh, freedom and the opportunity to grow in virtue and all that. Um, But we mustn't lose, however, and we are losing, perhaps we have lost um, what, again, what the original enchantment was showing us that we're made for glory. We're made to look up to God. We're made to look up to saints. We're made to look up in humility and magnanimity. We're made to place our hope in, in these great things. We're made, we're made for hierarchy. We're made to look up to a king and a, a, a priest, prophet, and a king. We're made for that. 
And even if we constantly have failed each other as humans on the human level to image that to one another, to carry that out with regards to one another, we mustn't lose what that original enchantment was trying to teach us, which is of this, this relationship with us and God, that God is the Lord, God is the King. And that doesn't take away from us. God is not a king who who denigrates his servants. He doesn't he doesn't abuse even even if we've we've ruined it over and over and over again. God's greatness raises us, uh, us up, dignifies us, and we encounter this in literature again. I love that so many great great uh, moments. I love that that bit in Lord of the Rings, you know, where Boromir has just been shot. He's done. He's been resisting Aragorn's kingship the whole time. It's only at the end of his life, you know, he grabs his hand, and maybe this is in the movie, maybe not in the book, but you know, he says. I would have followed you, my king. And he finally realizes, it finally comes together. His, On the one hand, he had sort of a disenchanted cynicism with the kingship of Gondor, you know, with the, with the weakness of men. But finally, at the end of his life, in that friendship, he was able to, to, to he was re-enchanted. He saw the goodness in that of when we, when we look upwards in friendship, when we look upwards toward God. And so, again, that, that last line there is talking about how we must a society which becomes democratic in ethos as well as in constitution is doomed. It, we have to have our constitutions. We have to protect people. We have to have laws and all that. Great. But we mustn't let that, that democratic ethos replace our, our love of, of uh, the true, the good, and the beautiful. Our, our wanting to look up to saints, our wanting to admire great saints, our wanting to admire Christ the King. Um, that aristocratic impulse uh, is something deeper and truer. And it's not about humanity. It's about our relationship with God and that we can't lose. Well, it's a lot easier to put your hope in princes, right? As we hear yes. in the gospel. Yeah. And princes were only, that's why princes and fairy tales are oftentimes a lot better for our soul because they're teaching us something real. You know, we become enchanted with the princes, the great Kings, you know, the, the, the great captains in our literature and for good reason. But the, that is to then, again, place that hope in the true king. Uh, John Mark, Lauren asks, are hope and memory connected? And mm. if they are, as a follow-up, what does it mean that our memory could be imprecise? Hope and memory. Well, one thing that just comes to mind immediately is that the, the cardinal virtue of prudence, um, one of its perfections is memoriam. Um, and I'd say that that's probably an important um, an important virtue when we think of this process of maturing from our, our human hope to the theological hope, because when we memory with regards to prudence means that as we go through life, we, we turn to what has happened and we get the point, so to speak. Like when we make an examination of, uh, examination of conscience at the end of the day, certainly we, we reflect on what went wrong, but we also reflect on what went right. We look, we try to, to take memory is as much about what we forget as it is that what we remember, like we forget a lot of the less important stuff. And we try to get the point, the meaning, what God was doing, what we can learn from, from our mistakes, what actually happened. And so that sense of memory, that's again, connected to the virtue of prudence, that I think really is an important aspect of this whole process, because oftentimes when we're disenchanted, that's the, that's the, the time when we're tempted to look back and say, it was all, there was never anything to it. All my hopes and dreams, all the good that I saw in this person, this relationship, bicycles or whatever it was, it, there was, there was, it was all just, a, it was just a mirage. And again, that's part of the point of that disenchanted. If you read through the rest of the essay, he gives some more examples of the person who kind of gets stuck at that place and they don't hold true 
someplace Lewis describes faith as, as uh, kind of the mind holding to what it once knew to be true, even when the feeling has passed, something like that. And again, that's, that's part of the conscious engagement with the virtue of faith when we're going through disenchantment. That, yeah, we realized there was something false. We, we, we put too much hope in a human thing. Or maybe, maybe even our image of God was imperfect. Lewis sometimes calls or someplace calls God the great iconoclast because part of our relationship with God involves him coming and kind of crushing our imperfect image of him from time to time throughout our life. And the point is, it's at that crucial moment that we, we either look back and hold on to the truths that, that we did know and let go of the falsity. Or we 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 kind of hold on to the despair and we become bitter and we despair and you know and there's that whole road, and so I do think that the memory is important here. But again, it's connected to this virtue of prudence, and prudence is always this turning to the reality of things and keeping us there, seeing the point, um, uh, making making a habit of being people of truth of reality. Yeah, I I think we'll end with this question coming in from Aaron. Aaron's asking, do you think Lewis would say that we can move back and forth between disenchantment and re-enchantment multiple times, or is it more of a one-way movement? And how do we stay re-enchanted? It's a good question. And it's connected to, to the last one, the memory. So I guess let's think of the ages of enchantment with, with regards to our relationship with the church, with our relationship with God. God doesn't change, but, but we change. And so we become enchanted with God. We, we do experience some disenchantment, not because God has changed, but because our picture of God has to crumble and fall. And that has to happen over and over, as again, I was saying. Um, and so that there's probably true with regards to that relationship in particular, that it's going to be a bit of that uh, a cyclicality to that throughout our life. And that's a good thing. You know, we hold to what's true and what's permanent, but we also allow God through the experiences he gives us. And again, faith, hope, and love really do determine how we interpret the events of our life. You know, when when the when the job moment happens, we either look at it and say, "Well, I thought God was great, and now I'm not so sure," or we hold to, "No, I know God is great, and I can't see the purpose of this right now, but somehow on the other side of this, somehow eventually, I'll see uh, the truth, the meaning, but also I believe that somehow in the process, something important is happening." You know, uh, the truth, the true image of God that I'm supposed to understand, I'm supposed to place greater faith and hope and love in is being is being given to me. And so that perseverance really depends. Again, this human perseverance depends on that otherworldly hope. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.